the reality is that we can run the whole of Australia on renewable energy, mostly solar and wind, backed up with hydro and battery storage and pumped hydro storage for longer term, backed up by some new transmission lines to join areas where the wind isn't blowing to areas where it is blowing at a particular time and backed up by demand management. That is Mark Diesendorf. Mark is an honorary associate professor in the Environment and Society Group, School of Humanities and Languages at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And he has just published a new book, The Path to a Sustainable Civilization. He wrote the book with Rod Taylor, a freelance science and technology writer, journalist and broadcaster. And yes, this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations. Welcome. I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Mac was kind enough to talk with me for my podcast, so let's have a listen now to what we have to say. I should point out that I did talk to Mark in Brisbane at the Green Institute Conference, but I deleted what I'd recorded, and so Mark was kind enough to do it all again. The Path to a Sustainable Future is a wonderful book. It's non-technical, it's accessible, and it has some great ideas, and it will help us address our climate-stressed future. Let's listen now to what Mark had to say. Uh, Mark, can you tell me why you wrote The Path to a Sustainable Civilization? Well, it's really a culmination of my life's work. I've been working on renewable energy and sustainability for several decades, and the sense of urgency now has become very great, not only the urgency from uh, the climate situation, which is really disastrous, but also we're now seeing uh, very great danger of Australia being dragged into a war with China, being dragged by the United States. We're seeing huge biodiversity losses. We're seeing increasing inequality between the rich and the poor, both within Australia and around the whole world. And so it really came to a point where I felt something had to be done. And I guess the other factor was that I was an author of a more academic book uh, edited by Stephen Williams and Rod Taylor uh, that was published last year on sustainability. Um, Titles actually Sustainability and the New Economics. And that's a very good book, but it's a book of contributed Uh, pieces by different authors and there was no coherent theme or thrust or recommendation coming through it. So after talking with Rod Taylor, we sort of decided that a more coherent book was needed. And then before I knew it, I had written most (laughs) of it and, and, and further discussions then were needed with Rod. So that's how it evolved. Just tell me something about Rod Taylor, because he's your fellow co-author, I guess. Yes, yes. Rod's a a science and IT journalist. He writes a weekly column in the Canberra Times, and he he contributes. He has a local radio program. This is in Canberra, and uh, and he's also active in 
a number of community groups uh, concerned with sustainability. So actually, while the writing process of the book was going on, Rod and I never actually saw each other. So uh, he was in Canberra, I was in Sydney. Well, actually, he was travelling around Australia most of the time, but his base is in Canberra. And it's only after, uh, at the Canberra launch of, of our book, The Path to a Sustainable Civilization, uh, did we actually meet for a long time. We had met several years ago. Reading the bookmark left me with this overwhelming feeling that this was something of a, a last final push for you, um, a cry from the heart that something would be done for people to listen and take notice. So what's been the response to the book? Well, first I should say that it is, as you say, a cry from the heart, but it is also the book also focuses on solutions. So it doesn't dwell on the threats. It introduces them in the first couple of chapters. Uh, but then our main purpose is to identify the barriers to moving to, towards a sustainable civilization out of a collapsing civilization, which I believe we're currently in, and then to propose strategies for community, the community sustainability movement, and that includes environment, social justice, peace, trade union, uh, public health, you name it. <clears throat> so we, the book recommends strategy, a strategy, a common strategy, if these organisations get together to push those who hold power towards a more sustainable society. And, and now, it's a wonderful, it's a, sorry, it's a wonderful book and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's got some great ideas in it. Thanks. I, I lost the rest, of the, the rest of your question. I answered the first assumptions <laughs> oh. in the question. What's been the response to the book? Ah, yes, the response. Now, that's an important question. So we held our book launch in Canberra um, some time ago and on a very cold winter's night, uh, we got about 60 people, uh, including Richard Dennis, who was our keynote speaker. Richard, who, of course, is the CEO of the Australia Institute. And a lot of interest and a lot of people bought books. Uh, we've recently ha had a public symposium at the University of New South Wales. So this that was more of a university event, but it was open to the public. And again, on a thunderstorm, rainy night, uh, we actually got 80 people and again, very enthusiastic response with the result that we are now planning a second event in Sydney. Uh, we have invitations to speak um, in other parts of Australia. I've already spoken at um, Tim Hollow's Green Institute conference in Brisbane and also at an international conference that just happened to be held this year in the Gold Coast an international conference on ecology and the environment. And yes, the, the response has been really good among the community movements. Uh, so far, though, the response from the ABC, our ABC, has been zero. And oh, really? Yeah, although oh, all my previous books have received discussion on the ABC, this one, which I think is the most important, uh, we haven't yet been able to break through which is very disappointing. Mark, you told me recently that Rod Taylor actually wrote the opening part of the introduction, so, which I love. I thought that the, 
the dynamic that drove the Titanic to its fate sort of equates with what's happening now on our Earth. So um, can you tell me something about, to, can you tell our listeners something about the image that that creates? Well, I think Rod t- tells this better than I can, but as you've indicated, the Rod has taken the Titanic as as a metaphor for the situation of, that's happening to human civilization. So the Titanic set off, uh, it was widely promoted as being unsinkable, um, like our civilization at present. Um, the captain was under pressure, under instruction from the owners to travel as fast as possible uh, across the Atlantic because of the economics of the situation and uh, to not to worry about ice fields and so on because the ship was impregnable. Um, when it did hit an iceberg and, and sank, it, it was interesting that the greatest proportion of deaths was, of course, amongst the poorest people on the ship who were, who were living down below in, in the bottom, in the bowels of the ship. And the fewest people who died were the rich who were on the top deck, and many of those managed to escape in the boats and survive. So again, it's a metaphor. We are seeing the, the increasing social inequality around the world. We see a situation where the global south is being exploited to the extent that really there is, there have now been several studies showing that there is a net transfer of wealth from the, the south to the north. In other words, from the poor to the rich. So when we talk about overseas aid, we tend to ignore that uh, the rich countries are extracting the resources from the poor countries, are paying a measly price for that, and uh, it's the rich countries that are really profiting and the large corporations, of course, uh, within the rich countries, the large multinationals. Mark, you wrote at one point about the Jesus Bolt, so can you explain that to me? I, I can't really. That's, that actually is one of Rod's <laughs> images. Well, I can just outline that basically yeah. there is, if you're flying a, um, a light aircraft or a parachute or something, there is a key connector often on these, um, on these uh, devices. Uh, and if that connector fails then the, the whole thing collapses. Um, I'm not sure that that image is so great because I think our civilization is actually collapsing on several grounds. On, so it's not just one not bolt, just several one bolts. Bolt. And each of yeah. those bolts, whether it's ecological or war or biological or you know, poverty, each of those bolts is, is really in a very bad state. And... <laughs> let's talk let's talk briefly about state capture so what is it and why does it matter and get, can you give me some examples of that yes so um, state capture is the situation where very powerful vested interests often large corporations essentially capture control of nation states and sometimes also of international organizations and to the extent that they're actually running them or determining policies. So the most obvious ex- example is, of course, the fossil fuel industry's influence 
on policies of both major parties in Australia and similarly in the United States and, and many places around the world. Uh, it's symbolised by the politician who later became our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and another politician, I think it was Barnaby Joyce, almost worshipping a lump of coal in Parliament House. And they held this lump of coal up and praised it and worshipped it. And this, this lump of coal was provided by the Minerals Council of Australia, which is one of the main fossil fuel lobbies in the country. And they lacquered it before handing it to the politicians so that the politicians wouldn't get their hands dirty. So, so that's one example. I, I would take another example of state capture where I would argue that Australia has largely been captured by the military-industrial complex of the USA. So we have a situation where suddenly, out of the blue, a, a former Prime Minister, uh, Scott Morrison, suddenly announced that we would be switching our submarine purchases from uh, diesel-powered French submarines, which are most suitable for defending our coastline, to American or British or both nuclear-powered submarines, which are most suitable for helping the US to try its vain attempts to contain China in the South China Sea. And mm. thanks to investigative reporting uh, by journalists at the Washington Post, we now know that before that decision was made, five so-called retired US admirals were employed by our Department of Defense to advise it on future purchases. So there's a very clear bias there. And similarly, the Australian... So you could almost guess what their advice would be, couldn't you? Well, you could almost guess. And mm. another example in the defence area, where defence has essentially taken over foreign policy, is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It's treated... It's an advisor to our government. It's often interviewed as a kind of objective expert organisation on the ABC, but it is funded by the United States government and the weapons industry, as well as the Australian government. So it, let's say there is a potential conflict of interest there. So we've seen state capture in this country, not only in fossil fuels and foreign affairs and defence, but in the gambling industry, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, there's a whole range of industries uh, and other organisations that have very unhealthy influences on governments, and particularly our government. And, um, and really, this is a violation of democracy because they are making the policies and making the decisions. And, and the Prime Minister, for example, in Australia has the power to take Australia to war in a foreign country without any discussion in Parliament. It's a complete violation, as I said, it's a complete violation of democratic principles. And, and that's what's happened. So we've been at war supporting the US in, in Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq and, and Syria, and you know, it goes on and on. Mark, I heard you speak at the Green Institute Conference in Brisbane. Um, and do you feel events such as that um, advance the issues that concern you? Uh, absolutely. I think it was an excellent conference. Um, it, it 
it created really high level discussion of a number of particularly environmental issues and but some social justice issues as well and we need more of this kind of conference but we also need to go beyond people who are potentially sympathetic and we need to be able to exert pressure on the decision makers and that's why probably the main general recommendation of our book is that that a variety of community-based organizations whether they're environmental or social justice or peace or trade union etc a variety of organizations have to form alliances to tackle the driving forces of environmental destruction and social inequality and those driving forces as we've discussed are state capture the capture of the nation state by vested interests and what we haven't yet discussed is the existing economic system which is does you know, the system is the economic system is basically designed on the on the basis of exploiting the natural environment and the vast majority of people living in this world I was going to say in chapter 8 you discuss community action for social change um so does social change come from the bottom up, the top down, or both, or how does it happen? Well, um, a, a visiting delegation uh, was lobbying President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the United States some years ago, and Roosevelt responded by saying, okay, you've convinced me. Now get out there and make me do it. And that's really the principle that we're arguing that without very strong pressure from the grassroots, from the community, from people who are concerned, from people who are suffering and from people who identify with the suffering of our environment, without that pressure, governments tend to just fiddle around at the edges. So we have a situation in Australia where the current uh, Labor government is doing more than the previous coalition government on renewable energy, but at the same time it is supporting the mining and export of fossil fuels, of coal and gas. And this is a hopeless pathway. This is, it's a pathway to destruction of our civilization. So we really have to have much stronger pressure to force governments, to force decision makers to make the really effective decisions, we need to have that strong community pressure to weaken the power of vested interests, to weaken state capture right across the board. And the strength of the, of the strategy that we're recommending is that if a wide range of community groups form these alliances, they can bring to bear a very large number of, of Australians, they can bring to bear that pressure on governments and um, we can get much better outcomes then for all the concerns, all the specific areas of those groups because we can weaken the driving forces, we can modify our economic system and I, I'm not imagining that we can suddenly throw out capitalism overnight but what we can do is push over the neoliberal uh, notions, ideologies, ideologies like we have to have eternal, continuing, endless growth on a finite planet, which is ridiculous, 
uh, ideologies that wealth trickles down from the rich to the poor. It very rarely does in practice. This kind of ideology has to be pushed over as well. And I think we can do that now. Yeah, Mark, talking about growth, you, you mentioned in the book a couple of times degrowth and job guarantees. So where does that fit in with the sustainable society or so well, sustainable okay. civilization? Well, the current economic system is a system of endless growth, basically. And we are now in a situation where not only are we exceeding the planet's capacity to cope in climate, but in biological diversity, in the impact on groundwater and freshwater, on the chemical pollution of the environment. And so, so we, and that um, results from the continuing increase in consumption, consumption of energy, even if it's renewable, and the consumption of materials. And of course, the in, endless increase in population. Well, so the argument in the book is that in fact, we have to transition to what we call a steady state economy. And now, over the past 30, 40, 50 years, there's been a rapid development of an alternative to the conventional economic system. And that alternative is called ecological economics. And its principal goal is transitioning the economies and societies of our planet to what we call a steady state economy, one with no growth in energy, materials, land use, and ultimately no growth in population. It's only, it only makes common sense. And if we are to do that, we still have to consider that the poorer countries must continue to develop, to develop and inevitably they will need to use more energy and materials and so on. So that means that the rich countries, we might say the super rich countries, which includes Australia, uh, really have to reduce uh, their consumption of materials and energy and land and so on and stabilize so is their that populations. called degrowth? So that is called, we call it planned degrowth okay. because it's not the same as a recession. Mm. A recession is unplanned degrowth and a recession can throw lots of people out of work, millions of people out of work. But there have been a number of studies now, both economic studies and physical studies, that suggests that, in fact, we can transition to a steady-state economy with a lower throughput, a lower use of energy, materials, and land, and with a stable population, and not throw people out of work. And, and, and part of that um, understanding is based on having um, what we call universal basic services, where there's much more emphasis on public housing, public education, public health, uh, public um, transport, public parks, and so on. So the, the vast majority of people, everyone in the society has the basics, and that reduces the pressure for endless growth. It reduces the pressure for people to become, to try to become rich. Uh, we can be rich on a social wage where the society provides our basics, and the other part of that is a job guarantee, a, a, a guarantee that everyone who can't find work in the market economy and wants to work, so it's a voluntary concept, will 
get a job. And the federal government, in the case of Australia, must fund that job guarantee. And the jobs are provided by all levels of government, federal, state and community, and sorry, and local, and by registered community organisations. And the jobs provided will be jobs that have to be done, essential in society, regenerating our environment, for example. And there's huge potential. There's so many jobs that are unpaid at present that people do. They're not rewarded, but they're done out of goodwill. And really, they deserve um, remuneration, even if it is at a basic level. So that combination of job guarantee and universal basic services provides a the basis for a steady state economy, for a better society. Mark, they're all wonderful, wonderful ideas, and I, I approve of all of them, but how do we advance them in the face of neoliberalism? Like- well, I think neoliberalism is ripe for pushing over because it it failed disastrously, but first between the global in the global financial crisis, and it failed again during the COVID epidemic, and which is continuing, of course, and in violation of so-called neoliberal principles, our government had to spend, had to create and spend hundreds of billions of dollars in order to keep the economy and society afloat. Now, creating and spending that huge amount of money is a complete violation of neoliberalism. But the sad thing is that during COVID, the government, uh, after making these enormous spendings, which were absolutely essential, the government then announced, oh, well, of course, we'll reassure you people, we'll go back to the old economy, the old economy, which is controlled by the market, which means controlled by the 1% who control the market uh, after COVID and so on. Well, I don't think so. Neoliberalism has demonstrated its failures. We need uh, more universal, we need universal basic services funded by the government. We need job guarantees. We need a, a, a focus on protecting the environment and reducing social inequality. And let's face it, we need to tax the rich more because it is the rich who are the biggest, have the biggest environmental impacts, whether it is climate change or, or, or whatever. Um, the rich have a far greater impact. And in response to the sort of claim, claim we used to hear from our previous prime minister that this is you know, class warfare, I think we can argue that no, no, this is correcting the existing class warfare where the rich pay almost no taxes. In many cases, rich individuals and large corporations pay zero taxes. Uh, and it's really the the masses of the population that are paying most of the taxes if you add them all up. So class warfare, no, I think we want to end class warfare and create a better society. That's That's my argument. Mark, you discussed quite a bit the revolving door. So that's where politicians retire to influential corporate roles and corporate people migrate into political roles. So 
Why is that a worry and how do we stop it and why should we stop it? Well, this is one of the tools of state capture and it's been, it's very obvious with the fossil fuel industry where the um, chief political advisors and chief of staff of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison came directly from the Minerals Council of Australia and the, the revolving door also revolves in reverse where former ministers of energy or resources who retire from both major political parties in this country have been appointed almost immediately to very highly paid jobs in the industries that they were supposed to be managing as ministers. And we've seen this particularly with the resources industry. I don't think I need to name names uh, here, but uh, and that also exists, that situation of re revolving doors. We've seen it with the consultancy, the, the big four big uh, consultants accounting uh, firms in Australia and the scandal uh, about their behaviour, um, particularly P PwC. Uh, and we've seen how they have embedded their own people in the public service that then ends up hiring them, hiring those consultancies to, to do very highly paid uh, consulting work for governments. So the revolving door is one of the main tools of state capture, along with political donations and the concentrated uh, media ownership situation. So should there be limits on when politicians can move into uh, corporate roles and or retiring politicians? Absolutely. Five years, I would say. I mean, politicians are pretty able people. They're in the public view. They should not be allowed to move into areas within five years. They should not move into areas that they were previously in charge of as ministers. It's, it's complete, um, obvious potential conflict of interest. I enjoyed the chapter about myths and nuclear energy, so I think that needs to be read by everybody. And you said that nuclear power is too expensive, too slow to build, um, too dangerous, too inflexible, too energy intensive. So how does some politicians get away with get, trying to go down that path? So Australia is being led, misled by misinformation or at worst disinformation. What's happening all there? Yes, there's a lot of hype about nuclear energy. And of course... The interests that are pushing that hype are not just the uranium mining industry, although they have an obvious interest, but also the fossil fuel industry, because the fossil fuel industry sees that if there can be some confidence in this hopeless technology of nuclear power, it will delay the growth of renewable energy. It will take funding away from renewable energy and and that means that fossil fuels can continue to pollute the environment for longer. So there is, there are indications that the fossil fuel industry, as well as the uranium industry, is is backing these calls, these really foolish calls for nuclear energy. Mm. The reality is that we can run the whole of Australia on renewable energy, mostly solar and wind, backed up with hydro and battery storage and pumped hydro storage for longer term, backed up by some new transmission lines to join 
areas where the wind isn't blowing to areas where it is blowing mm, at a p- yeah. particular time and backed up by demand management. And in fact, a, a number of places already are pretty close to 100% renewable electricity, which is the major step before we electrify all heating and transportation. Uh, Scotland, for example, is around averaged over a year, it's about 97% renewable in terms of electricity. And that is 90% of its electricity consumption comes from renewables, mostly wind, with some hydro backup. And uh, Denmark and South Australia are now over 70% renewables. Denmark, mostly wind, uh, with a little bit of bioenergy from its agricultural residues. South Australia, wind and solar, and uh, with big batteries going in. And both Denmark and South Australia should hit 100% renewable electricity by 2030. But of course, that's the major step. But then we also have to uh, electrify transportation uh, and increase public transport and facilities for cycling and walking in cities and so on. And also we must electrify combustion heating. So um, really we're talking about an electrical future based on clean renewables, which are in vast, there's a vast resource in this country and, and perhaps we will be able to export renewable energy to our neighbours. It was in 2013 that Slap Tomorrow, which is a shepherd based group and you've had some involvement with, has staged a forum in uh, in Shepparton and we had some 650 people attend. And at the time, the parts per million were about uh, two, uh, th- 390, I think. And they're now heading to about 420. So what's happening there? Why haven't we had some impact? They really have shot up. And it isn't just the concentration, but we are seeing the impacts. We are seeing not only the melting of the Arctic polar cap during the summer, the northern summer, but we are now seeing massive melting of the Antarctic. And, uh, I mean, really, these meltings, uh, particularly of the Antarctic area, uh, are not quickly reversible. They can only be reversed on timescales of probably millennia, thousands of years, uh, we are seeing the terrible fires around the world now, uh, far more severe and far more frequent than they used to be in the past. And, uh, I mean, the impacts are all there. They're hitting us in the face, but somehow our political system is not responding. And it's not responding because... The community isn't yet sufficiently organised to exert the kind of pressure we're talking about on our politicians, on our Mm, business people. Mark, is there something else you'd like to say about the path to a sustainable civilization? You you enjoy this book. Well, look, what we're showing in the book is that there are pathways to stopping the collapse of our civilization and transitioning to a sustainable civilization, these pathways are not easy pathways. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) And we set out 
a whole range of things that have to be done. And if we look at them all together, it's pretty intimidating. I'm a bushwalker, and I, for me, the image is trying to climb a mountain through an almost indecipherable track that is extremely rocky and slippery and dangerous. But we are that climb is away from something terrible that is at the bottom pursuing us. And we just have to do it. And in response to the people who, who might say very superficially, uh, you, get, you want to take us back to the clay, the caves and the trees, <laughs> I would say, uh, no, we're trying to escape that society. You people who want to continue with business as usual in an impossible situation, you are the ones that will take us back to the metaphorical caves and the trees. Mm. We would like our civilization to survive, thrive, and become a better place where there's less inequality and where we have a, an environment, a protected environment that supports us because it is our life support system. Yeah. Mark, we're planning, it was in 2013 when Slap Tomorrow went, ran its first forum, and this being a 10-year anniversary of that, that date, we're contemplating organising another, a similar event, whether it's going to be, won't be as big, I don't think. But So is that something that you would be involved in or we could involve you? So you could talk about the solutions that people could... I would be delighted, uh, Robert. So um, I'm happy to travel around the country uh, and if I can help in any way to to stimulate discussion, uh, count me in. So, oh, we'll uh, yes, I would be delighted to return to Shepparton. We um, really want someone who's going to talk about the solutions, and you've obviously got lots. So. Yes, I think we're past talking about climate science and so on. The, the science is well established, yeah, and yeah. we have to focus on the solutions and particularly on overcoming the barriers, the mm. barriers that are there. The driving forces are, to me, the principal barriers, the capture of our nation states, the economic system that is telling us that we have to do stupid things um, that are destructive for the environment and destructive for social equality. Yeah. So, yeah, mm. I think I think we, that's the focus we want, yeah, overcoming the barriers and finding the solution pathways. I like that idea. Thanks, Mark. Mark, I haven't got any more questions, so is there anything else you'd like to say? I think I've said it all. <laughs> thanks, Robert. <laughs> you've, you've done well. Yes, thanks, Mark. That was wonderful. Now, if you want to hear more from Mark, along with many other good speakers, Make sure you get along to Stepping Up Together on Saturday, September 9 at the Melbourne Town Hall and there'll be a link for that event in the show notes. It starts at 1pm and runs through to 4 o'clock. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been wonderful to have you along. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, and I sincerely hope you did, please feel free to share it with your friends. In fact, I'd love you to share it with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis, how we should respond and what we should be doing. And there's some great advice in Mark's new book, A Path to a Sustainable Civilization. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And beyond that, 
please follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this podcast. Is it good? Is it bad? Please tell me. Don't hold back. Email me at r.mclean7 at icloud.com. Now take care.